Welcome back. This is Founders Talk. I'm Adam Stachowiak, founder and editor-in-chief here at ChangeLog. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and what it takes to build and run their business. Today, I'm joined by Quinn Slack, CEO of Sourcegraph. I've been tracking Sourcegraph for years now, and I knew one day they would hit unicorn status, and that happened this year. They're just off a massive $125 million Series D funding round led by Andreessen Horowitz at a $2.625 billion valuation to bring Code Search to every developer. The future of Code Search has never been more clear, and I'm excited to share today's show with you. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Render. Render is a unified platform to build and run all your apps and websites with FreeSSL, a global CDN, private networks, and auto deploys from Git. They handle everything from simple static sites to complex apps with dozens of microservices. There are a ton of use cases for Render, but the sweet spot I want to focus on right now is how they're able to offer a better, more streamlined approach to hosting modern apps at a better price point. For example, Heroku is known to be quite expensive at scale, and alternatives like AWS and Kubernetes require significant time and management overhead for early-stage startups. Render is built for modern applications and offers everything you need out of the box. One-click scaling, zero downtime deploys, built-in SSL, private networking, managed databases, secrets and configuration management, persistent block storage, and infrastructure as code. Render is powerful and it's easy to use, Automate your cloud hosting with Render at render.com slash changelog. The best part, our listeners get $100 in credit, and all that begins at render.com slash changelog. Again, render.com slash changelog. Quinn Slack, let's begin at the beginning, man. I'm a, a fan of your company. I think what you've done is pretty awesome. I've been paying attention to you for a while now. I met Beyond a while back at GopherCon and was just really fascinated with this idea of code search. But let's begin with the big news you've got. you got a Series D funding that just took place, led by Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z, $2.625 billion valuation, raised $125 million. That's got to make you happy, right? Like, you're on cloud nine right now, right? Yeah, we love code search. We want to get code search to every single developer, every single company. And we started in 2013. A lot of people thought code search was weird back then. We had some really strong fans. Still weird, but it's getting cooler. <laughs> yeah, you know, weird in a good way. Yeah. But, you know, we're all weird together with, you know, almost a million users now. And it's just great to see way more people getting in code search and people on the business side understanding the impact of that. So it's not just us devs talking about how much we love code search. We've definitely come a long way, but we got a long way to go because most devs still don't use code search and yeah. most companies still don't have it. Yeah, I think there's this this demystification really too. You think command F or command shift F in your ideal code editor is code search. Obviously we can go into the details of that, but I think even six years ago when you began, did I hear that right? Six years ago? Eight years ago at this point. Eight years ago. Okay, sorry about that. Time flies. Time does fly. So even eight years ago, I think about that. That's like a roughly a quarter of GitHub's history or, or actually three quarters of GitHub's history because GitHub's around 12 years old. And I think as the idea of having multiple code bases and the maturity of 
dev teams and whatnot, just the idea of repositories has exploded over the last eight years. So I'd even say that when you begin, you begin, I guess as any good idea might, a little premature to the market, right? Yeah. So even this last eight years, you've really had to go uphill to express the importance of code search. And I think maybe you might be at the perfect moment now considering one, the funding. So that's a great resounding support of your idea. But then two, I think your current tagline is pretty awesome. Move fast, even in big code bases, right? I mean, that's got to say most of it because a lot of teams have big code bases, multiple repositories, a lot of dependencies in open source and being able to grok a majority of that with command shift F just isn't possible without a lot of setup, really. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Well, it's crazy to think of how quickly coding is moving. When we started in 2013, I am pretty sure that there's more code in the world written after 2013 than before 2013. I don't know what the cutoff is, but there's way more code than ever before. Is that a stat? Do you know that for sure? Is that a, is that a, a belief? We would love to get that to be a complete stat. Right now, I'd say it's a belief. Maybe the okay. cutoff is 2011. Maybe it's 2015. Who knows? But there's a lot more code being written all the time. And as you said, GitHub was started in 2008. Now that feels like something, you know, of course everyone uses a code host, but people didn't do that before GitHub. Yeah. And these other practices like continuous integration or testing or continuous deployment, they seem obvious. But I mean, I remember the world back in the late 90s when you would edit a file in your folder, you'd FTP it up to your site in a CGI bin and it would run. Yeah. And it's not that long ago that coding practices were so different. And so, yeah, we think code search is going to be one of these new things that every dev just uses like version control and like code review and like code hosts. That's why we started Sourcegraph. But it's very humbling to just think of how fast things are moving in coding. Yeah. Do you think that code search is an every developer problem, though? Do you think it's is there a point where there's diminishing returns like an, an individual who has maybe a small code base doesn't have a big code base? You know, is there a a threshold where it becomes far more useful. That's kind of what I mean. Today, definitely. And I think you see this in every new software development practice with when it comes to continuous integration, it was the really big teams with mission critical products that needed to move quickly that would use continuous integration. But now it's so good and the friction is so low that if you're just working on a tiny little project, you can drop a GitHub action file in your repo and get continuous integration. So, yeah, it starts at the high end, but then the act of bringing it to every dev and every company as we're doing now is about making it so that it's easier to use it than to not use it. Mm -hmm. And I would also say when you're a dev, your job is complex and hard in proportion to the amount of code that you have to deal with. And you probably are using so many open source libraries. And if you're not, well, you probably should be. And that's this whole massive web of code that's out there that you should be tapping into and code search will help you kind of in the same way that, you know, if you're a seven-year-old kid, your life is probably not that complex in many ways. You don't have a full-time knowledge worker job, but you probably use Google to find out music and facts. And for me, it was researching how to get my parents to get us a cat in our family. Wow. So you used your coding skills to influence your parents to buy a cat. Is that right? Well, that was me using search engines in the web. Okay. It's not like Google is only used by professional knowledge workers at work. Right. It's used for so many things because it's so easy to use and all this knowledge is at your fingertips. And with code search, 
we want to make that the same way. So it's so easy for any dev, even if they're on a tiny little project. And one other thing about code search is once you've used it, you can't live without it. So, you know, for me, I work on some random side projects. Like one of them is this simulation of the aviation industry. It's not like a flight simulator, which is probably a lot cooler, but you know, you can make airlines and fares and discounts and baggage fees and, you know, run all that tiny little random hack project. I use code search on it, even though it's just me. And I'm almost embarrassed talking about it publicly because it's such a, a nerdy project. Well, I'd imagine code search is probably second nature to you. So you may have a bias, but that's cool. That's okay. It's still useful. It doesn't change its usefulness. Yeah. But, you know, let's speak to maybe a little bit of specifics with source graph. Cause I think the one thing that may be a challenge and you could speak to this is getting it set up for you and then others, right? Cause it requires a little bit of Docker knowledge, a little bit of maybe self-hosted knowledge. I think you have a cloud product. I'm not sure of all the details of how your products are shaking out, but there's a bit of a ceremony. There's a bit of a cadence to getting set up with even source graph, let alone anything else that might be source graph. Like, can you speak to that? Yeah. We, you know, try to make it as easy as possible. So you can set it up with Docker, just Docker run and see it running locally. And we have a self-hosted offering. So you can run it completely on your own network. You don't need to send any code up and we're coming out with a cloud product. I know a lot of companies do it the other way. First, they start out with a cloud product and then they're like, we want to go after these really big companies and they come out with an enterprise offering. So maybe I could just, you know, talk through the, how we got to this point, all the, yeah, stupid mistakes we made Please. in hindsight at Sourcegraph. Yeah. For me, my personal story with coding starts when I was nine years old, learning to code. My parents had a marketing agency. They worked long hours, great parents, but I had a lot of time on my own and I would get on the computer. I'd go on the internet. I taught myself to code and I'd be in these chat rooms and started fixing other companies' websites, building apps, building Perl scripts. And this was the late nineties when it was a more innocent time on the internet. And what I loved is that all of this knowledge about coding was out there. This was way before Stack Overflow or GitHub. It was, you know, around the time of SourceForge. What year, roughly? 97 to 2001. Okay. I could read the best code out there on the internet. And that was amazing. And I loved that as a kid, I didn't know anyone else in real life who coded. I didn't go to college. I wasn't one of those kids that went to college really early. I was just at home and no one knew that I was like 10 years old and I felt like I could read and learn from and participate in coding. And it was so open. It's one of the most open things out there. And that's what got me into coding at first. I love that, that ethos. So, you know, fast forward, I was working on patches to some bigger open source projects, curl and open SSL, NSS, GNU TLS, and things like that. These massive code bases and Again, you know, as a self-taught programmer, I didn't have the instinct to go and tap people on the shoulder or things like that. I'd set up these code search tools to try to understand these big code bases. And I kind of assumed that everyone would do that. So back then, this was around 2009 to 2010, I would set up OpenGrok and, you know, just have my editor Emacs up on one screen, on the other screen, OpenGrok, and I would use it to browse through, understand, hmm. search the code to find usage examples or hey, this new class was added. Let me look at the commit that added it and understand why that person did it that way. Let me see the changes over time of that. And I learn so much and I love that you anyone could just go and learn that. So I think I probably thought that everyone used code search at the time. For my co-founder at Sourcegraph, 
similar story. He was at Google where they famously have this awesome code search tool that every Google dev uses. It's called code search naturally. Yeah. Good name. Yeah. I mean, it says what it does on the tin and Google devs love this tool. They use it all the time. And a lot of Google devs, when they quit, it's the thing that they miss most. It's not the other perks of Google, the foosball or whatever. It's this code search tool. And my co-founder, Biang, he had seen that when he was working on a really big code base at Google and assumed that, well, everyone used it. But then we went to some big banks. We were working inside some big banks together. And, well, they didn't have code search. And if we wanted to find out how this API works or if we wanted to change something and understand everything that could break, we had to call meetings. And these weren't Zoom meetings. These were flying people in around the country. It was really painful. And we just thought like, this code search thing, it could have solved this problem or answered these questions for us in three minutes instead of flying people in from all around the country. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an extreme case. But that's when we realized that, well, not everyone had code search. And we were actually the, the few that had seen it at that time. So we started SourceGraph in 2013 to bring code search to every company and every dev because we loved it. And one of the most magical things in the first couple weeks of building it we were hacking on SourceGraph, and uh, for me, I was writing some code to analyze Go code, and that would be used to help me find usage examples. And I was using SourceGraph to build SourceGraph, and SourceGraph helped me discover that someone else had written this library that did so much of what I was going to do in the next two weeks. So I just used that library instead. It was this guy, Roger Pepe, in the UK. So shout out to Roger. And just then SourceGraph saved me two weeks and it meant that we didn't have to write a bunch of code. It meant that our product was better and we could move more quickly. And, you know, after that first two week period at SourceGraph, I was like, oh, this is going to be easy. (laughs) You know, we already got to something that was working. So that was 2013. And just to give people a timeline, it wasn't really until the end of 2019 that we really found that product that was working and, you know, started to really grow. And we made a ton of mistakes in the meantime, yeah. should I just go through some of those mistakes we made? I have a couple questions first. I definitely want to talk about mistakes. Yeah. One, this repository that saves you some time. How was it available in your code search? Like, did you just have all of GitHub or all of your dependencies? How did it become discoverable to you to be like, okay, let me search probably a function or some sort of functionality you might write and you discover somebody else's project? How did it save you time? We indexed a bunch of open source Go repositories on GitHub, on, at the time, code.google.com. When that was a thing, yeah. Yeah, and this was one of those. I think this repo is actually on code.google.com. And then SourceGraph just showed it when we were looking for use examples of this Go standard library function to parse the documentation of a Go package. Is that a common practice then for SourceGraph users today to index large swaths of a particular language to discover accidentally? Is that like a, a common use case, or is that sort of like a... A one-off. It's a really common use case. So the indexing is already taken care of. And so you can just go to SourceGraph and search for doc.new. That's what I typed in at the time. Or any other function name you're trying to use or a library that you're trying to use. And you're going to see how other people are using it across the entire world of open source code or in your company, across all of your company's private code. Right. Because, I mean... Naming is a challenge for developers. Obviously, it's one of the hardest problems we often face. Like, what do I name this thing? 
but you may have a similar idea like doc.new as another developer. So if you can yeah. search for doc.new across a span of code that may be useful to you, dependency or something open source, then maybe you find something that's similar to what you might write and you read a little bit of code, you discover it has similar features or the same exact features maybe in this case. Yeah. You're like, well, I'm going to save myself two weeks and I'm just going to use their project temporarily or long-term as a dependency. Yeah. You'll probably learn something, even if it's not that's exactly it. what you need to do, even if you can't just copy and paste it. You'll definitely learn something. And that's what it's really about, too, is like, you know, finding code that's similar or useful within whatever your search parameters might be. Being able to find, discover and use that cross reference to other repositories and being able to really kind of dig deeper into, you know, it's kind of like finding the needle in the haystack, essentially. Like you got the haystack of code and the needle is what you really need to fine tune and find that point of to use the, the analogy well. And that's your ability to search across that is your sort of lens to find the needles within the haystack. Would you, is that kind of how you describe source graph and the usefulness? Absolutely. And I think there's also the analogy to Google where Google is kind of like an extension of your brain. Now you go there when you want to find a turkey chili recipe or how to get to the restaurant. That's how I do it. Yeah. So the other day we were making baked sweet potatoes and I know how to do baked potatoes like night and day, you know, like it's too easy for me, you know? And I figured sweet potatoes are pretty much the same and they kind of were. And thankfully Google pointed me to a recipe that said, yep, you're right. It's pretty much similar. Poke holes in it, put in the oven, whatever the process might be at this point is done. 205 degrees, 210 degrees, pull it out, cut it open, eat it kind of thing or let it rest or whatever. So I did need my second brain Google to confirm my hypothesis, which was pretty much on point. Maybe you would have found someone who's got a different recipe and you would try it out and maybe it would be bad. And I tweaked it. Yeah. You get to try it out. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of recipes, like I'll search for people that are talking about that recipe on Reddit because people seem to be freer to just talk about things on Reddit. And with code, all the open source code that's out there, it provides like this view into how thousands or hundreds of thousands of random devs thought about how to use some piece of code. And maybe they're completely wrong and crazy, but you'll probably learn something. Well, let's go into this, some of those mistakes then, because I want to talk a bit about how SourceGraph works. And I think by doing that, we'll discover iterations gone wrong, so to speak. Because I think at one point it was a, an extension in the browser. I could be wrong. There was, you know, where you can sort of like do something what you're doing here where you would find a function in a, in a different repository, but not quite code search. It was sort of like function finding. I can't recall all the different iterations, but help me find the specifics and whatnot to the mistakes and what got you to hear essentially to, that we feel like this is the product to build upon. Yeah. Well, where to begin with the mistakes? The first is just, what do we call it? We call it code search, universal code search now. And that seems really obvious in hindsight, but we didn't call it that. And this is on me. I'm the CEO and co-founder here at SourceGraph and we heard from a lot of people that code search is a feature. It's not a value. You need to talk about the value. And this is a kind of exaggerated case, but, you know, we should call it the empowerment and enablement of, you know, enterprise productivity and value creation tool. Clearly, that is not going to make the developer want to set it up. And right. I look back and I want to, you know, smack myself in the head for thinking about calling it anything confusing. It's code search. And I see a lot of other DevTools companies that are starting struggle with that. Do you talk about the value, as so many people say you should? Or do you talk about just what is it? What is the noun? And be really concrete. And if you do the latter, 
then you open yourself up to other people thinking you're naive. You don't know how to build a business. You don't know how to sell. You're not going to be able to get beyond just the people that already know it. And those are fair criticisms and you should take it. But we just found that it didn't work unless we called it code search. And that was one of the things that went into us really starting to take off in 2019 was just being really concrete about what SourceGraph is, not developer platform, not something else or other, just code search. Coming up, I asked Quinn about the values that drive the SourceGraph brand and their culture. What I find interesting is the role customer demand played in that discovery. That's coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Snowplow Analytics. Snowplow is the behavioral data management platform for teams. Maximize the value of your behavioral data using Snowplow Insights. A managed data platform that's built on leading open source tech is leveraged by tens of thousands of users. Capture and process high quality behavioral data from all your platforms and products and deliver that data to your cloud destination of choice. When marketing needs to make data informed decisions, when product needs next level understanding, when analytics needs rich and accurate behavioral data, Snowplow is the solution for data teams who want to manage the collection, processing, and warehousing of data across all their platforms and products. Get started and experience Snowplow data for yourself at snowplowanalytics.com. Again, snowplowanalytics.com. How early on in your in your lifespan of the business did you do sort of an introspective process to you know, I want to call it branding, but less around the logo design, but more about who you are as a company. How how soon from inception did it take you to sort of do an exercise like that? Have you ever done one? We've done several things like that. And they were helpful, especially as they surfaced what kind of values we had as a team. I would say that it didn't really gel or stick fully until we had customers wanting to pull our product out of our hands and they really demanded it. And that kind of stress that a company goes through, that is a test. And you see which of the values do you actually refer to, which of them are helpful, which of them are just, you know, a a nice thought that you want to have. So I think it was good to think about those things, but just be prepared to regularly reevaluate them for what's actually in use. So we have our values now, they're on our handbook, that's all public. And we are really explicit about these values will change. Maybe they'll change in wording. Maybe we'll realize that for this next phase of the company, we need to have a different value. And we don't want to just, you know, add a value to that list and say, okay, you know, everyone do that because that's not how values work. We need to find the values that are driving really good behavior and surface them and then write them down and write them down in a way that it's easy to refer back to them. And if a value is not being referred back to, it's probably worthless. And, you know, we delete that. Interesting. How do you mean a customer was trying to pull the code base out of your hands? Oh, I just mean feeling immense demand from the market. Okay, gotcha. Okay, I was like, does that mean the self-host? Is he reflecting on self-hosting or is he reflecting on like the idea of the cloud? I wasn't sure if you were talking (laughs) about cloud or if it was like they really wanted it, which is a good thing. Yeah. So I did a quick search to find your your values. So the first one is be customer-driven. Second one is work as a team. Third is high agency. Fourth is high quality. Fifth is be welcoming and inclusive. 
The next one is open and transparent. And the third one is continuously grow. So you went through an exercise to sort of discover these things. Like, did you lock yourself in a room for a couple of days? What was the process to get here? Like, was this iterative over years or was it something that you had brought and Byung had brought and other team members had brought? How did it, how did it come together? We really evolved to this point. We're a global and all remote company. So we didn't lock ourselves in a room. It was an async process and it was asking the team for what kinds of behaviors do you think are really good that you want an easy way to reinforce? And I think we started with three and then we've added some more. We've also removed some since then. And you can actually look in the history of that page on our handbook in the Git repository and you can see all the changes that have been made since we set that up. Wow. Very cool. I love that. So the reason why I asked that question around branding and, you know, sort of knowing some things about like, how do you talk about who you are is because we had a similar conflict here at Change Law Media because while we're a very small company in comparison, we're not a, we're a global company, but we're, how many are you now? 50, 75, probably more than that. We have 180 people. 180. So I was half as much at my highest estimation. We have two as the primary owners of the business and probably another 20 or 30 contributors across the board. So I'd say if we had to say like reflect on company size, you know, 25, 30-ish, but we're not quite your size. Almost none of those are full-time employees. A lot of them work with us consistently, but they're not full-time employees. They're And that's by nature, just by nature of how we work and how they desire to work too. It's not because we're unwilling. It's just the nature of how things work. But for us to really understand who we were, you know, this is six years back. We locked ourselves in a room. We did a branding exercise for two days. We didn't lock ourselves literally in the room for two days straight, but, you know, we did two days, you know, of eight hours of like just reflecting. And what I found was the most beneficial thing was less of what we came out with, but more what we discovered within, which was unifying ourselves. So you and Beyond, for example, or you and many of the team members who are stakeholders in the business or whatever it might be, having a unified vision for what you're trying to achieve together. Because if you don't do that, you sort of assume, right? You assume Beyond knows what page you're on. He knows what your page you're on and vice versa. And all this assumption happens. And meanwhile, you make a bunch of mistakes Yeah. or you assume a lot of different things. Is that at all true for you? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the conflict or big decisions that people went different ways on, a lot of times you'll find a misalignment of values in there. Yeah. Not in a bad way. And I know when people hear misalignment of values, you know, some people might interpret that as like, oh, one person's good and one person's bad. That's not it at all. And people in general want to be working together and getting those values aligned, finding, you know, at the root of some disagreement or conflict that's bad for the business, you know, what the disagreement is. I think values have been a really helpful way to do that. We all want to go the right way. And what way is the right way? And if everybody has a different answer for what way the right way is, because you're all trying to do good by probably a core tenant, which is create awesome things that are useful, yeah. right? I mean, that's probably the most core tenant for any business. Do things that matter, that are useful. That's sort of the, the barrier to entry or the, the lowest bar in business. You have to be unified in what that goal is. Kind of, you know, one thing I like to lean on, this question I like to lean on is, uh, what are we optimizing for as a business? Am I going to contributor number one or manager number two or team lead number three, what are we optimizing for? And kind of get that same answer from each of them from that sort of identify what the assumptions might be. And uh, this is what we're really going for. Do you believe in that mission? Yeah, I believe in that mission. Well, now you're unified. Yeah. 
Now it's spoken, and in your case of a handbook, it's written down. You can reflect on it. You can change it. You can edit it. You can contribute to it, et cetera. Yeah, and there's probably a lot of different perfectly right answers to what are you optimizing for, but you all got to have the same answer. Yeah, eventually, and that's the that's the fun part and the hard part is coming to that same answer because I think once you're unified, which I think you can speak to because, as I said before in the in the top of the call, I am a fan. I'm a big fan of Source Graph. I've known Beyond longer than I've known you, but I'm also a fan of you as well. And I'm a fan of what you're doing. It was not always easy to understand what you were trying to do over the years. And I think you do that with a brand discovery or a product discovery or how do we deploy this discovery? How do we we understand the value of code search? We understand the usefulness of code search to every developer. But how do we put it in the hands of developers so it's actionable? And I think that's the hard part there, which might lead to another mistake, failure, at the product level, which is you went cloud, not self-host first. So you began with cloud and you didn't do self-host. Talk about how you, I suppose, engineered the application to be as a service, not as a service, as a cloud service. How did you begin? How did you know it was wrong? How do you know it's right now? Yeah, a lot of mistakes and a lot of things in the product went into that. You know, First, when you hear code search, there are some people who, even in 2013, when we started the company, knew exactly what that meant and wanted that. And those were the ex-Googlers, the ex-Facebookers, because they also had code search. It was the other people like me that had worked on these big open source projects that had code search tools set up. And those people generally think in terms of, I want to search across all my company's code. And they work at generally bigger companies. And that's one population that we could go after. The other population we could go after is just the mass of devs, getting individual devs as users and letting them search open source code. And then they auth their company's code on. And we, not being enterprise salespeople at the time, we thought, well, we know individual devs, let's go after them. And turns out that it was very difficult and expensive to make code search across all the world's open source code. And also you don't really go through your day thinking, oh, I need code search for open source code, especially if you don't know anyone else who does it and you've never had it before. You don't really know what you're missing. Maybe it's a good thing, but we needed a way to you know, break that cycle. And from a business point of view, when we were a tiny company building code search, a lot of devs would say, oh, this is cool. Let me try my company's code. And they'd get to that GitHub OAuth screen that asks them, to authorize sending their company's code over to Sourcegraph. <laughs> We're a tiny company. They, not that we did anything wrong, but they had no reason to trust us at the time. And code is a very sensitive asset and everything just got blocked there. No one wanted to author code. There were a few very small companies that wanted to do it. And the reality is they didn't have that much code with like seven developers. There just wasn't enough code so that people were like, wow, onboarding is really hard, or I can't understand this code, or I'm doing a big refactor and I need to figure out where it's going to be affected. They just didn't need code search in the same way that a company like Uber or Twitter needed code search. So just by nature, it was enterprise. Just by nature of how it's useful, it seemed to be enterprise first, at least. Yeah. And you didn't discover that until later. We didn't discover that until we tried doing it the other way and it failed. And we had you know some individual users, but no real companies were getting on. And there's this other aspect of founder psychology that hurt us here. The feedback we were getting was, I don't feel comfortable clicking that green button to auth our code. 
And I think we wanted to be very introspective and reflective and honest with ourselves. And it seems very convenient as founders who loved our product to say, yeah, it's just a security problem. Let's just, you know, overcome that. But we wanted to be more introspective and think like, well, maybe if the product was more valuable, then they would click that green button because there are other companies that they do trust with their code. They might have their code on GitHub, for example, and that means GitHub is more valuable. So how do we make our product more valuable? I didn't want to be the headstrong founder to just say, I know it sounds silly in hindsight, but I didn't want to just say, yeah, it's a security objection. Let's address that. Well, we, we tried to make the product more and more valuable, but we were just going after a segment that wasn't where that intense need was and the product wasn't good enough and it was still too high friction. So finally we said, okay, it must be a security objection. Let's just try that. We didn't really have any alternatives and we made it so that you could run Sourcegraph self-hosted and self-service. You didn't even need to talk to us to get it set up. It's just like Docker run command like we have now. Yeah. And that's when things really began to take off. We got some really big customers really quickly. Like uh, Uber was one of our first big customers and we'd made the product good enough so that every dev at Uber was using Sourcegraph. And those four to 5,000 engineers using Sourcegraph in their company, where if you joined Uber in your engineer onboarding packet, it would say, go to Sourcegraph. That was more usage than we'd ever seen. And that was exactly the right way that people get brought into loving code search when it's the only way that they can hope to understand this massive code base they've onboarded into with thousands of repositories, languages, so much history, so many dependencies. And we hit the sweet spot for you know, our product solving an intense need and also having a way to get distribution because any dev could bring Sourcegraph in it's self-hosted, so you didn't need permission even as a dev because it didn't send any code out. And that was a huge unlock for us at Sourcegraph. Yeah, step one is adoption, right? I mean, so at this time, let's maybe open the licensing and, and open source aspects of these things too, because I would imagine, I don't know the exact history of your license changes, but I think at this time it was quite permissive open source. Is that right? Like you could just use it and now it's a little less permissive. Like I recall fair source license being a part of this. Help me understand the liberal nature, the permissive nature of being able to Docker install and use source graph. And then maybe how that couples into, well, how do you build a business around that? Right. If I can just go and install source graph on my own, how do I then eventually pay source graph? If I'm Uber, like how does that transaction occur in a open source distributed code base product. Yeah, there was some like random experimentation we did back in 2014. But since I think 2018, we've been open core. And so about half the code is Apache 2. And half the code is basically not Apache 2. You can look at it. It's not under any special license. It's under the same kind of license as if, you know, the New York Times publishes an article on the internet. You can read it, but you can't just go and use it. Right. And all of our code is public. And we think that's really important. We hear from so many devs who appreciate the transparency. They can see all the development that's occurring on Sourcegraph, all of our PRs, all of our issues, all of our code changes. And this single repo has got some directories called enterprise, and that's the non-open source code. Everything else is open source in there. And in that, we do it just like uh, GitLab yeah. does it. So we learned a lot from them and how they do that. Yeah, so you got your Sourcegraph OSSs under the Apache 2 license, and basically anything in the enterprise or the client web source enterprise directories are under 
are subject to the SourceGraph Enterprise license, which is which makes sense. Yeah. That code is still available, though. You just can't use it without a license, right? Like if you're using that, it's because you're paying SourceGraph right. some sort of fee that doesn't break any legal infringements. So the, the source is still available. You can still read that source. Yeah. Potentially even contribute. I don't know. You could probably speak to that. CLA involved in that, but I'd imagine no. And that the enterprise build, that's the default build that if you do Docker run, then, yeah. you know, you're going to get that. So I think people add a lot of complexity in their mind when they think of software licensing. And I think a good analogy is to, you know, the New York Times, where is the New York Times open source? No, but you can go and read the articles for free. And then also even things like Google Chrome and VS Code and Android. Android is mostly open source, but there are some components that Google mixes in at the end that they've chosen to you know, withhold. And we go a little bit farther in terms of open source than VS Code and Chrome and Android and that everything is public, but it's a good mix, I think. We found it to be a good mix because it's really important to us to show devs everything we do and to build that trust. Well, it would make sense to think of this as like a proportionally open source. Like Apache 2 is, it's got its limitations, but it is an open source. It is sanctioned by the OSI as an open source license. So essentially everything under enterprise directories is simply what they call source available, which is becoming more and more popular. I mean, for many, many reasons, obviously. I mean, if you had a permissive license on it, then you'd have to find a way to, I guess, be the police of who's using your code unlicensed and et cetera, et cetera, where a source available license like the source graph enterprise license might make it more restrictive in terms of how you can use that code, but at least it's a at least it's source available and it's actually intended to be enterprise use code. So it's going to be in a commercial environment, in a environment where someone's paying source graph. Let's face it, you're a business, you have to make money. Yeah. How does that transaction transpire then? So if if any developer listening to this is like, I want to try source graph, they can go and Docker run find your, your container, you know, go through the guide. You have guides doing this. I've set it up myself. It's pretty easy. But at what point do you use SourceGraph to the point where you can engage these enterprise licenses and then have to determine or establish a relationship? How does that relationship occur? Does it occur in the dashboard? Does it occur by calling to help and talking to a salesperson? How do you go from interested open source user or just freely available to just insult themselves point it in some repositories, put some sources in there, do some searching, et cetera, to using enterprise licenses and having a relationship and this paid relationship that you have to build your business. You can go set up SourceGraph on your own laptop or on your own infrastructure, just using you know, Docker Run or something like that without talking to us. And you can use it for up to 10 users. Once you hit that cap, it's not going to let you add more users and it, it's going to show this to you in the site admin panel. And then at that point, just reach out to us. You can buy a license. You can, you know, get a trial, roll it out to more people. But the whole time you can use it with all the code you have. So you get to see that it works at, at scale. And we want to make it so you can see it working completely before mm-hmm. you need to talk to us or anything like that. I think going back to business model, there's a lot of different business models that software companies use. And for me, I mean, I'm a dev. What I like is companies that are transparent and we chose to, be, to make our source public. And the, uh, the alternative is not, you know, oh, SourceGraph is going to give everything away for free because we are a business. We can't do that. We need to charge for something. We decided to make our source uh, available. Half of it's 
under Apache 2 open source, half of it's not. We like to be really clear about how we make money. I think a lot of the skepticism that developers have is not, you know, oh, we don't want companies to be building a business. It's we don't want companies to be hiding that or we don't want to be the product ourselves. We want to know that as customers, the company is devoted to us. And, you know, you mentioned our first value is to be customer driven. We make money when all the devs at a company are using Sourcegraph. The company will pay us for each dev that uses it. And it's really simple like that. So we got to this subject by keying off of mistakes. So, you know, initially you went cloud. The discovery was to go self-hosted. That way it was less around a business success, but more of a an adoption success. Because one, as even a half open source project, the first thing you got to do to be used is be adopted, right? That's the hardest yeah. thing for any open source really that intends to be at scale is to find adoption. And so you have to be, I suppose, remove the friction enough. So if you were cloud, you were not easily adopted because of security constraints. Let's go back to that though, because I think you said in that scenario, you said that the security concern was top of mind at first, but it seemed like you kicked it down the field a bit and you thought, well, that's just too simple. It can't be the security. We have to improve the usefulness of this thing, the value of this thing. Yeah. It seems like a lesson learned there might be the simplest solution might be <laughs> the solution, right? Because like, yeah, if you'd have maybe paid attention to your hindsight earlier, but hey, you know what? Sometimes mistakes are made and they're learned from. So we can't always get upset with ourselves or whatever for the mistakes we make, because sometimes those mistakes, while they're not intentional, but they can teach us something for the future iterations of things we'll do. Yeah. You can always use that negative as a positive in the future. It may be negative now, but go back to that. Like security seemed to be the most simplest solution, but yet you said, let's go with add more value. And it's so silly because I am the kind of person who also freezes at that scary OAuth screen for other products. And I too. no way am I authing my email or calendar or code to this random company. So I knew it deep in my bones. And for some reason, it didn't click. And I've seen a lot of other founders, since I learned the lesson the hard way, walk right up to this problem themselves. And one thing I asked them is, you know, okay, you think all these companies are going to auth their code or whatever to your service? Do you auth? your company's code to other services run by companies like you. And very often they say no. And then I think it clicks. Well, that dovetails into a success then because you got, from what I understand, 800,000 or more devs using Sourcegraph today, or at least in the last year. Maybe you can give me an updated number on that. But like, you know, since that decision, since, you know, understanding, okay, I can't, it doesn't make sense to ask the world to auth their code to us. It makes more sense for us to deliver a distributed version of the software in a way that's easily installed. Docker's super easy. You can manage that container super easily. That's a, a common pathway for a lot of developers to try new things. I've done it with Pi-hole, with Bitwarden, with a lot of different things I run here on my local network. So I don't know about you, but I'm a, a Raspberry Pi tinkerer to some degree. Cool. And I love having my Pi-hole on my network. It's so awesome. I love the team behind Pi-hole. Can't wait to have them on a podcast eventually. I run that via Docker, for example. So it's pretty easy to try something and get adoption. And you've done that really well since essentially learning this lesson of, you know, you went cloud first to a distributed model and maybe they're back again. So maybe you can speak eventually to the to the future of cloud for you guys. But let's talk about success. A lot of devs are using Sourcegraph. Help me understand what the surface area is of your user base right now. Yeah, it started out with 
companies like Uber and Lyft and Yelp and so on. We have three of the five FANG companies using SourceGraph now. We have companies like uh, Capital One and Atlassian and GE. We've got companies all around the world. We've got you know large banks. We've got large government customers. We've got so many of the companies that make the products that we use every day, which is really motivating. And what worked for us was making a product so good that every dev used it in a company and having that be the benchmark. So we wanted to never lose a customer. We wanted to always grow virally within a company. And by the way, that's a we found that to be much easier than trying to go and get like 40 million devs to just use source graph, you know, for open source code. Having code search within a company was just way more immediately valuable to the company's devs than like finding individual devs and, you know, having them see a ton of value early on. And we've, you know, look at where we have the most penetration now as the mid-market. It's companies, you know, up to 5,000 devs. We've got a ton of companies that are in the larger enterprise segment and they need features like way more complex permissions or they have a million repos and we need to scale up to that. They have other compliance requirements, but because we've shown like a hundred amazing logos that are, you know, all around the size, maybe a little bit smaller in some ways, a little bit bigger in other ways, we can, you know, just take a small step forward and bring in a lot of new customers. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of, for a dev tools company of starting with companies like Uber is any dev can bring you into a company like Uber because they put a lot of trust in their devs to bring new things in. And it's, you know, generally a single big code base or, you know, a lot of repos, but most dev has have access and they really understand the value of developers being happy and productive. So it was a really great place to start. But now as we grow, you know, yeah, we see, way bigger enterprises needing this and they have way more code, way more complexity, way more legacy code. So the pain is bigger. We also see companies starting to trust us on the cloud where they didn't when we were three people in, you know, a random office that they never heard of. Now that we have have these customers and we have a record of being secure and transparent. Now companies are saying, well, yeah, we do want code search on the cloud. (laughs) So now we're kind of, doing what didn't work for us in the past, but it's very rewarding. So it's not yet GA, but I have my private code, uh, my individual private code on sourcegraph.com. It's in very limited beta right now. And that's really exciting. We're working up to that. And then one other thing that's really exciting is as we've built really good code search that like every dev at all these companies uses, you know, they're using it for finding usage examples and seeing what can break and best practices and their page at 3 a.m. and there's a problem with access tokens, seeing what are all the access token changes. The product has just gotten a lot better, way lower friction, way faster, way better looking, way easier to, to get spun up to using. And all that means lower friction. So going back to that individual dev to be able to just search across the open source universe on Sourcegraph and find some stuff that helps them as a dev, it's a lot better. And we are ready to go and grow and win a lot more individual devs using Sourcegraph. Well, it's a good thing you got that funding then, right? Yeah, that's helping us a lot. I would imagine this $125 million Series D funding, as I said before, led by Andreessen Horowitz. Valuation's awesome too. I mean, it's a number, but it's a milestone, right? But the real rubber meeting the road is how you use $125 million to push this product forward. 
And I think you're at a place now, and you can speak to this yourself, you know, as you had said, while it may be in limited beta, this cloud product, you're, you're back to a point where you have gained the necessary trust. I'd imagine that a lot of these organizations are thinking, can you just manage this thing for me? Yeah. Right. So when you talk about this funding and, and this round, the Series D round, what are some of the ways that you're going to roll out these dollars to make them better product, better company? What are some of the you know key things you're really hoping to happen with that money? Well, 90% of our money goes to our team, our people hiring amazing people. So it's really growing the team by a lot. Engineers who have felt the problem of tons of code and who've used code search in the past maybe, or who wish they had it, we are hiring in basically every single team. And the main increase in hiring that's come from this funding round is massive increase in our hiring plan on engineering. Now, you know, it's really important that we don't just go and hire in a foolish way. There's a maximum rate that you can sustainably grow an engineering team. So we've, we've made it really clear to each team, and you can see this in our handbook, how we do this, that anyone on the team can say, you know, hey, we're not ready as a team to bring on another person. And we always want a minimum viable team. That means before we expect them to produce anything sustainably, they got to have a product manager, an engineering manager, a tech lead. And before that, they're in an onboarding phase. Mm. So we're trying to be really thoughtful about this, but we do want to grow as fast as we sustainably can with amazing engineers to go and bring code search to way more devs out there. And there's so much that we can do given that in all these amazing companies, we are the only tool that's got all the code at the company in one place and that all the devs are using. Because you look at the other tools that devs use, they're so fragmented. People use all kinds of different programming languages, editors. I use Emacs. Yeah. So does Beyond. Other people use Vim. Plenty of people don't. And don't use Emacs. Yeah. Even code hosts. Yeah. GitHub is great. GitLab is great. And they're a fierce competitor. Bitbucket is popular. Atlassian Suite is really compelling. There's other code hosts out there. And there's probably some new code host idea, concept that we don't even know about that is going to sound totally crazy to us that someone is building or thinking about right now that's going to make GitHub and that kind of, I guess, paradigm for code hosts look so outdated. And in any decently sized company, you got code scattered across GitHub.com, GitHub Enterprise, that team over there loves GitLab. You acquired a company using Bitbucket. You got legacy code and Perforce, whatever. And so everything is fragmented around us. But Sourcegraph is this one universal thing in these companies. It's the only universal thing across all the code and all the devs. So our customers are asking us to build so many more kinds of things on top of that and to make it so they can as well, which is really exciting and keeps us busy. Up next, we dig deeper into Sourcegraph's product direction and where Quinn will be using those Series D funding dollars to drive product and growth. Stick around. SignalWire is real-time video tech to help you create interactive video experiences previously not possible. It gives you access to broadcast quality, ultra low latency video that's proven and trusted by Amazon, Ring Doorbell, Zoom, and others. See why the future of video communication is being built on SignalWire. They have easy to deploy APIs, SDKs for the most popular programming languages, and expert support from the OGs of software-defined telecom tech. Try it today at SignalWire.com and use code FOUNDERS for $25 in developer credit. Just visit SignalWire.com 
That's SignalWire.com and use code FOUNDERS to receive that 25 bucks. Once again, SignalWire.com, code FOUNDERS. Okay, so 90% of the money is going to growth in terms of people. You're going to do it in a healthy way based upon your handbook and team growth intentions. You mentioned cloud being in beta, so I'd imagine that's a high on the priority list when it comes to how you're rolling out product and what you're focusing on. Yeah. Can you give us a peek behind the veil of some of these things you might be able to build upon on top of this, this ubiquitous space where, as you said, everything else is fractured and fragmented, code search, source graph for teams. That's the one place we can see it all. What else could you build upon on top of that? There are a lot of things. I'll share some of the ones I'm most excited about. One is bringing in information that all these other tools that you already use know about your code. Like Datadog knows which parts of your code are running in production, errors they're throwing, logs, performance. We want any dev to be able to see that overlaid on the code when they're looking at the code on GitHub and a code review on source graph and code search, even in the future in their editor. And you don't want to see it all the time, but you can toggle it on and off. And it's not just Datadog, it's SonarCube. It's your custom tool for identifying areas with a lot of code churn or showing who in compliance signed off on this so that you don't need to go digging. All these things that know about your code, well, all that information should be in one place. And right now you got to go to so many different tools to find it. Think of it like you can write something that looks like an editor extension, but instead of just working in one editor on one person's machine, it's rolled out across every single dev in all the tools they use. And there's a lot of work to smooth out all the tools they use to present a common API, but that's the work that we're doing with our extension API and really excited about that. Another thing is batch changes in the past before this Source Graph had been a way to find across your code. But you look at Google, and more than two-thirds of the code changes at Google are automated. And that means that human devs have a ton of leverage. They don't have to do as much of the grunt work because they've got a really smooth tool for writing a program to make a code change and rolling that out. And doing all the annoying orchestration stuff, like opening up PRs, keeping them updated, nudging people maybe opening 1% at first to see if there's any problems, making it so that CI doesn't crash when you open up 1,000 PRs. And we built that. It's called Batch Changes. So now with SourceGraph, it's not just uh, finding code, but you can also fix code. And you can open up 1,000 pull requests and monitor the progress. And what that means is if you're some kind of central platform team or security team, instead of being really annoyed when you open up JIRA tickets and ask people to do things and they don't do it, you can put in a little bit more work yourself, but have a way bigger impact and clean up so much tech debt, get the code in a much better place. And it is a way more pleasant kind of relationship and a proactive mindset that you can have as those kinds of teams. So that's batch changes. And that was actually the first product that we built on top of code search. And we've got a ton of customers using it already. And I hope we can do a lot more things like that. So Batch Changes is an available add-on. I'd imagine in the repository, it's under the Enterprises section. Yeah. 
right under the enterprise directories. So that's already available and you can use that now. And I can see that being super useful. I'd imagine that even if you're one of these security teams or whatever, you can hypothesize, okay, what if we did all this, the legacy code, do that, run a build. And instead of maybe creating a bunch of pull requests, maybe you run all the tests and then you showcase that to your higher ups or to your other teams and say, listen, we've done all the work. We're not passing you Jira tickets anymore. We've done the work. We've got the test passing. We've done all this stuff in legacy code to make it more secure. We just want you to do a cool review of the test that they are passing. And then we're going to submit a pull request and you can review all the code and then we'll ship it obviously or whatever. Like that's a, it's a chance where you sort of empower developers, you know, going back to something you said before is we want to empower developers with code search and the power it offers individuals and teams. And that to me is like batch changes is one of the coolest things because we encounter in some areas so much legacy code and it's almost like don't ever touch that right don't it, it works don't mess with it yeah but if you could in a way that was responsible and maybe in a way that you can automate it and not have to nag developers or pull them away from product while still making progress to me that seems that seems like a good thing it, can you share some examples of yeah maybe some examples you know of where that's happened in the wild and any customer stories yeah I mean, to start with a really simple case, there was a company that wanted to move a bunch of YAML files across a ton of different repos that just specify how something is deployed to EC2 from dedicated instances to non-dedicated. So this is a simple text change, pretty simple, but you make a little program that opens up a YAML file and makes that change and you know writes that back to disk. And then with batch changes, you just run it across all that and opens up you know 700 pull requests and boom, you know, you've migrated all these deployments to be non-dedicated instances. We've seen another case, which is um, all the Docker files at a company that mentioned latest. That's dangerous because latest is non-deterministic. It could change, bad for security, bad for repeatability. So write a program that looks and sees all the Docker image tags latest that are referred to. We'll go and find that Docker image digest and pin it so that it's deterministic. Mm. We've seen... When a central platform team is deprecating an API and wants to replace it with another, go write a little code modification script that will update in each repo the version of the library that's being used to the new one, and then update the call site as well to use the new API. And you might think like, well, it's hard to do that automatically. I mean, sometimes it is hard to do it automatically, but if you can get it 95% of the way there, maybe 95% of the pull requests pass and they're correct and 5% aren't, you know, hopefully they're caught by CI. And if it's red, then go in and fix those manually. And you've cut down the work to 1 20th of the amount of work that you had to begin with. Then, you know, we've talked about how batch changes is used within a company, but we have a vision of something that should be much easier in the open source world, which is when you're an open source library author, you should be able to include with a new release of your library, some scripts, that will update all the callers to use the new better APIs that you're exposing so that you don't need to maintain arbitrary back compat for a long time so that callers can opt into having their code updated using scripts that you provide. And that's not something that we do today, but it's something that would be really powerful for the open source world. And we hope to be able to provide that. And the net of that is all the world's code is going to be a lot more up to date and devs won't have to do so much mm. boring work because nothing is more painful than when you upgrade some library that you didn't actually need to upgrade. And then you have to fix all these other things that broke for some other reason. We want to free developers from that. That's interesting because now thinking about SourceGraph as the 
is the non-fragmented central place where you can see all the code of an organization, it would make sense to begin to layer on automation on top of that. Yeah. You mentioned writing your own program to do some of this scripting. You know, have you considered or are you considering no code or low code like tools that help with that process? Sure, everybody can probably reach for Ruby or Bash or Z Show or something to do some sort of scripting or whatever, JavaScript even, you know. Are you considering automation tooling on top of that that might be no code or low code like? Yeah, my personal thought with no code and low code is people who want those things, they want things that are easy. So I replace no code and low code with the word easy in my mind. And we want to make it really easy for you to migrate code. And past that might be writing, no one would do this because it's so complex. That'd be writing a program that parses the AST, runs a compiler against some code and those kinds of things, I've written those programs. They're really complex. No one wants to write them. But we have this thing called structural search, which uh, was built by a team member at Sourcegraph that had uh, built something similar inside of Facebook that lets you write a really simple syntax, like a rewrite syntax, where you just write what the code looks like today and then what you want it to look like. And you can just put dot, dot, dot for when there's some kind of expression, you know, so if you want to change function call A to function call B, you'll do A, open parentheses, dot, 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 close parens, and the rewrite is going to be B, you know, open parentheses and so on. And that's not no code because it's literally, you know, writing code to make that change, but it's so easy to do. I think low code is probably the way it's going to be because you have to write something in that. I mean, you can't have a push button interface that does everything. That's, that's what they would call too easy. Quinn, too easy. Yeah. You want to go for easy. That's too easy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yep. Too easy is no no coding at all. Uh, I guess it's hard for some because you have to make the interface, but too easy for the individual user, I would say. But you're going for easy. So easy is is probably low code, not no code. Yeah, that's right. And with no code in general, I think no code is a gateway to people writing code. Totally. And I welcome that. I think the more no code, low code things we have in the world, the more overall code there's going to be. And I think there's a, in any thing that you want to do, there's a fundamental complexity and doing it in visual icons and symbols does not remove that fundamental complexity in the same way that Egyptian hieroglyphics, the symbol language that was used, that is a language, even though it's drawn with, you know, pictures and would we all be better off if we switched from using human language like English to just emojis no, you know, we'd come up with something just as complex to represent the same ideas using emojis. It's not like we can, you know, fundamentally simplify problems beyond the irreducible complexity just by getting away from code. Let's take a somewhat hard right then. I want to talk about uh, your role in particular as CEO. You know, I want to kind of look at your your day-to-day operations, maybe the way you lead, the way you're building your team, things like that. What can you speak to in terms of like, say, today's challenges. I know you have some upcoming things in your life happening. You can mention that if you want to, but I'm curious what, say, your current challenges are when you go to work. Like, what do you do? What are your challenges? You know, how do you get over them? How do you, how do you tackle team problems? Give me some examples of, of a day in Quinn's life. Yeah. The upcoming thing that you're referring to, I think, is the second kid that my wife and I are expecting very soon. Okay. We at SourceGraph were all remote. We went all remote before the pandemic and I love being able to be at home and see my kids, you know, all the time and family all the time. Yes, sir. Yeah. It's an amazing thing about being all remote 
one of many amazing things there is about that. When I think about my job as CEO and co-founder here, we've grown a lot. In the beginning of 2020, we were around 35 or 40 people, and now we're 180. So we've doubled many times over in that time. And it's become clear to me, if it you know wasn't already, that I have to build the, the team to build the company. I am not doing the things. I am finding amazing people and making it so that each morning they wake up and decide to sit down in front of their computer and work at SourceGraph that day. And they have so many other options out there in any time. The kind of people who come to SourceGraph have a ton of options. Right now, anyone on the team you know, in two hours could probably find another role in an amazing company. So it is so competitive out there. And I feel so grateful to have the team that we do. And we have to earn that right for them to want to be a team member every single day. So that's very humbling. And it sounds kind of corny to express this to team members, but I am so grateful that they choose to do this and you know work on this crazy idea to bring code search to every dev. And you know eventually we want to make it so everyone can code. Yeah. How do you do that practically? How do you make SourceGraph a place to that people want to show up to every day? You know, I know you've got, and maybe you can even call back to your handbook because I was going to ask you about that. Like, how does that play into creating a unified team? How does the handbook play into, say, you know, does everyone have access not only to it, but can they suggest changes to it? How does that play a role in, in creating a team worth being upon? Yeah, everything in SourceGraph is editable. And a lot of the good things that we do now or the good things about being at SourceGraph have not been, it's not like, oh, some great idea that I had someday. It's been an idea from a team member. And at the root of it is, though, this kind of fundamental confidence that what we are doing at SourceGraph is valuable, that we are directionally right, in that there are going to be way more people coding in the future. There's going to be a lot more code. And we're going to go solve all the problems that come about because of that. And what I care about is like getting that direction right. And I I think that is true. Beyond that, I want to surface all the problems, all the mistakes, all the bad things that can happen along the way. I want to get everyone at the team together in solving those. And Mm -hmm. I want to be really open that there's going to be a ton of challenges. So, you know, one thing with being as transparent as we are, making our code completely public, making our handbook completely public. And internally, we're very transparent. Like the moment we start working on slides for a board meeting, they're just in our Google Drive for every source grapher to see. What I like about that is it makes us a very robust company. So, you know, suppose source graph was just eking by being successful because we kept our code secret. And that was the only defensibility that we had. And then, you know, let's say someone leaked our code one day and, you know, then all of a sudden everyone else could do this. You know, it's not true. But that would not be a very robust company because one little change could knock everything over. And, you know, similarly, if we were a very secretive company, then it relies on each person, you know, doing the the right thing despite having a tiny bit of information about what everyone else is doing. People, you know, might find out that some other team is doing something and be like, well, that's not good and get upset. So, you know, if one little piece of information was shared, that could knock the whole thing over. I don't want to be running a company like that. I don't, I want to be able to sleep at night as a CEO. 
with our customers, for example, let's say that this is again, not true, but our customers are only using Sourcegraph because they just didn't know about the existence of some other code search tool that's out there. Then I'd have a tough time sleeping every night because I'd worry that, you know, some dev at our customer is going to find out that, oh, there's this other tool out there and then they can switch. And that would freak me out. So we go to our customers with other code search tools and say, what do you like about this? What don't you like? What can we learn from that? And we show it to them. And we try to make it so that we're winning in big ways, in sustainable ways, in really robust ways, rather than just because we're kind of juggling everything and, you know, we haven't hit any kind of bump while we're doing that. And so very open about the problems that we face when we don't hit a goal, when I make a mistake or do something wrong. I love it when people give me that feedback and that helps us be as robust as possible. I think that's what it all comes down to. I want us to to win because we have an enduring advantage that we have built a team that can do things way better than any other team out there that we've built a product that is so much better than everything else out there. I don't want to win by a hundredth of a second, a full second. I want to win by like, you know, an hour in the marathon. <laughs> it's nice to look back and see no one else there. I saw this marathon actually <laughs> recently with, uh, I think it was the women's marathon in the Olympics recently. And I, I could be wrong on this. I just caught the clip. But she looked back and no one was there. And she just like started crying because like it was just such a an emotional moment to one reach the finish line, but then reach the finish line by so far ahead of, a, of someone else. And that to me is like that's how I want to win, too. And not because I want to pull people, people down, but I, I just want my team, you know, all the work we do. I want it to be so successful that we can look back and see no one else in our path because we've just done such a great job of what our intentions were doing yeah. to deliver what we're trying to deliver. And I think that's a yeah, that's an admirable goal for sure. Yep. And, you know, it's not a zero sum game building brand new products, creating products. One thing I love about it is not zero sum. So, you know, it's not like we will win at someone else's expense, which is really good. And, you know, all of this, like we decided to adopt this mindset when we started SourceGraph back in 2013, because let's say we weren't on the right direction. Let's say our idea for SourceGraph is fundamentally wrong. Well, we wanted to find that out in like 2014 and only waste a year of our lives on this rather than postpone the inevitable and maybe just squeak by and, you know, always be just on the edge of failure. We wanted to know, you know, really clearly where we stood because the most precious thing is the time that you spend and we want to get to success or failure as quickly as possible. So true. I have one last question for you, Quinn, and it's, and I haven't told you what a B, so it's this kind of a curveball, and you can, decline or answer if you'd like, but what's on the horizon that not many people know about or no one knows about that you can share here on Founders Talk today? I think that a single person writing code can have a huge impact on the world. And I worry that we have lost that or forgotten that. There are some cases where that's been really clear, like with the creation of Bitcoin and Ethereum But what you see more of is people that can write code being pushed to go and build a software business, usually an enterprise software business around it. And in many ways, there have been successes, but I think there's so many people out there that just through their code can have a huge impact on the world. And I don't want to just have two data points from that. I want people to be able to build big businesses and build products that tons and tons of people can use just on their own. And that happens today if you're a writer. If you're a writer, you can write 
a book. You can write articles that have a huge impact on people. And when you do that, no one says, hey, you should go start a publishing company. But if you're a coder, that's what people tell you to. And I worry about the skill and ambition and enthusiasm we're losing from those people. And also from all the people that say, well, I don't want to you know, get into business. All I want to do is code. And knowing that that's, that doesn't seem possible, they don't even get started. So if one impact we can have at Sourcegraph is making it so that a single coder can have a much bigger impact on the world, that would make me very happy. And certainly, I feel this as someone who loves to code and who is now a CEO of an enterprise software business. There's so many things I love about that too. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think, how can that single person coding have even more distribution, even more impact? And how can we celebrate that as something that someone can do for their whole life? Does that play out in your involvement in Hack Club? Or is there another way that you or Sourcegraph plays a role in the making that possible? Hack Club is such a clear illustration of it. Hack Club is this nonprofit that runs coding clubs and communities for high school age students all around the world. And the amazing things that high school students can create with just you know a few weeks or months or years of coding education all on their own, all of their own initiative is amazing. And sometimes I see what they can create, like a computer vision program that waits for you to put your middle finger up and then takes a picture. You know, that's a complex computer vision algorithm. And I think how much harder that would be to build without that single person's initiative around it. So if that was a product in a company that was specced out and had business and marketing and product management, all these other people involved in it, it would you know, be better in many ways, but it would, it would take a lot longer and it would lose that kind of spark, that special nature. And I just worry that with a lot of the stuff that gets created in code today, it's not that really special feeling you get when it's something built by a single person that, where they have just poured their heart into it. Yeah. And I think we need more code and more software that comes out of that kind of mindset. Well said. Well, Quinn, I'm a, uh... I'm a fan. Congratulations on your funding. Congratulations, I suppose, pre-congratulations on your future new child in your life. That is amazing. One thing I'll share is uh, in regards to working remotely or being able to work from home, essentially. I have my own home office, but I always enjoy something I call micro moments. So I'll uh, I'll get up from this call. Right now it's 3.30 Eastern my time. Technically, I got a little bit more time left in my day. I'm going to come back to work. But I'm going to take a break after this call with you, and I'm going to go see my wife. I'm going to give her a hug and kiss. I'm going to see my sons, give them a hug, and I'm going to have a moment with them briefly, 10, 15 minutes. I might play Legos real quick or something like that, or I might do something fun real quick. The point is, is like I call those my micro moments. I love those, and I hope you have more of those in your life. Congrats again on the funding, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and wisdom here today on Founders Talk. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Happy family and happy coding to everyone out there. That's right. Thanks, Quinn. That's it for this episode of Founders Talk. Thank you for tuning in. Up next on Founders Talk is Guillermo Rauch, founder and CEO of Vercel. Talk about building a platform that's making the web faster and lets front-end teams do their best work. It's all about develop preview ship. Also on deck is Evan Kaplan, CEO of Influx Data, sharing his journey to become the CEO of Influx Data, the state of InfluxDB Cloud, and what it means to celebrate the wins. 
Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and Lost Darkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And of course, thank you to you for being a listener. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Tell a friend. I'd love to have them as a listener. Word of mouth is by far the best way for this show to grow. So if you got value from the show, tell a friend. The Galaxy Brain move is to subscribe to our master feed at changelaw.com slash master. You get all our podcasts in one single feed. Again, changelaw.com slash master. And if you want to get closer to the metal and make the ads disappear, check out changelaw plus plus. Head to changelaw.com slash plus plus. Thanks again for tuning in. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.